Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. to consider verses 30 to 33. Uh, We're going to read a little bit of a larger section there uh, down into chapter 10. But um, while you are turning, uh, one uh, word there, Friday, uh, the groundbreaking was uh, a very encouraging day. I appreciate everybody who uh, came out. Uh, It it was a uh, uh, what was a day with uh, a lot of a lot of joy, a lot of gladness, a lot of reflection on what God has been doing and what's coming in the future. Uh, in uh, some days ahead, uh, we're going to have a number of um, leadership moments to talk about things that are coming. We'll talk about peace and we'll talk about unity and whatnot. But let me uh, let me bring this matter up uh, today for just a, a brief little word. Um, it's been our practice uh, throughout the life of our church that we don't get. Uh, We don't get pushy when it comes to talking about money and giving those kinds of things. Uh, It's not our intention to manipulate uh, or guilt. Uh, We teach through the Bible. Giving comes up on a pretty regular kind of basis. And when there are needs, what we've done throughout the life of the church is we just simply communicate the needs that are there. And over and over again, the church has been generous. Uh, I've oftentimes been uh, amazed uh, at the generosity in the church. So let me communicate the need that we have right now. Uh, So they are starting uh, even this week. And we were told it'd be somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight months. I, I think material availability is probably going to delay that a little bit. So bear that in mind. So let's say something like eight-ish, nine-ish months, give or take, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, it is our goal as a church uh, that from now until the time that where we finish that project and we uh, finalize that loan, uh, that we get that payment knocked down as to as low as possible. So everything that happens from now until then, going above and beyond, will all be to lower in whatever that payment will be. So that's the need. Uh, take it and run with it however you wish to do. Uh, but that is our goal and what we're hoping to do. And we'll give you some updates as we get closer to it. Romans 9. Romans 9, and I I am excited that we are, uh, Lord willing, finishing up this passage today. We're going to start in verse 30, and then I'm going to read down through chapter 10, verse 4. We won't have time to study all of that, just the material in chapter 9, but it's helpful to see it in in the context of what happens, because chapter 9, 30 to 33, is a transition passage, and I want you to see kind of what we're transitioning into. So begin with me in verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. 
For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our merciful God in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son and asking for grace. Lord, we pray that you will come and continue to meet with us in this part of our worship. Lord, we ask, as Moses asked, Lord, that you would bring us to know you by knowing your ways. Teach us your truths. Show us your gospel. Show us what you are doing in this world. Bring us to a deeper understanding. I do pray that we will understand more deeply Christ crucified and all that that preaches, Lord, so that with boldness and confidence and security and joy and zeal and conviction, Lord, we will walk as sons and daughters in this age and live in obedience. So please bring this about and help us, O God. Father, we pray for our little ones in the next room. We pray that as they hear your word, that they will be drawn closer to Christ. We pray for some of those little ones to be saved today. Uh, I pray for those uh, hearing my voice uh, now, oh God, please give grace that there would be souls brought to faith in Christ now and your sons and daughters built up to great strength uh, and, and security, oh God. So please bless this time. Help me to do my job uh, in a way that honors you and is useful. Help all of us as we worship in hearing. We lift this up through the name of Jesus. Amen. One Friday night, um, I took a backpacking trip with a group of buddies. And we head out into the wilderness uh, in a pretty, uh, a pretty intense trail that we hiked. It was only a touch over five miles, but it was some pretty steep terrain, so it was way back in the middle of uh, nowhere by the time that we got there and we made camp next to this beautiful lake, beautiful spot overlooking, it was great. Began to unwind and relax. But after a little while, uh, there was another man who hiked along the same trail and asked if he minded if, we, uh, if he could um, camp right next to us. Now we're out in the middle of nowhere, which is part of what I find so uncanny about this encounter here. Later that evening, we got to talking with the man and it turned out that he was a, a Jewish doctor. And we got into a long discussion about the gospel. Now, this illustration would be fitting regardless of what bloodline the man came from, but the fact that he comes from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes it all the more uncanny in light of what we see in this passage and things that God is doing. We had this long discussion on the gospel and uh, it turned out that he believed in God, uh, had a general kind of belief that the scriptures have come in a way from God. He'd actually read the New Testament numerous times, had Christian friends who had shared the gospel at length with him. And, and there, there came a moment where there was, uh, we got to the heart of why it is that he refused to embrace Jesus as Messiah and the gospel it actually turned out that it wasn't so much Jesus as the Messiah. That wasn't his biggest hangup. 
His big hang up was this part right here. And I've, 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 I've never heard anyone articulate it so clearly. As I say it to you, I think you'll recognize it's a belief in billions of hearts on this planet. But he had a great self-awareness and articulated it clearly. He said, my biggest issue with all that you guys are saying, my biggest issue with Christianity is this. I'm the kind of guy that when we go to the movies, I don't want you to pay for my ticket. I want to pay my own way. What he said was that the reason he rejected Christianity is that it is built on this concept of needing Jesus to pay our way into heaven and he wanted to earn it himself. Well, hearing that, look at the text again. Look at verses 31 and 32 there. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works Look at chapter 10, verses three and four, not knowing about God's righteousness. Now this is the righteousness that comes from God. So that's not just talking about God's character there. That's the righteousness that comes to us from God, not knowing about God's righteousness, but seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says in this passage, that Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus receive righteousness from God, receive a right standing before God, even though they weren't seeking it, but that Israel trying to make themselves righteous, trying to earn it, trying to pay their own way by trusting in their own works, failed to achieve that righteousness. And so what is the result? They miss salvation. But this is also the case for anyone. And this goes for billions on the earth who trust in their own righteousness. You trust yourself, you lose. What's happening in these verses here is actually a number of things. In verses 30 to 33, this is a very full uh, passage, even, even though it's short. It's four little verses. There's a lot happening here. It's extremely helpful. You could understand a lot of the gospel and uh, a lot of the purposes of God that we've been seeing succinctly summarized in these four little verses. So, so here's what's happening. If we ask the question, why is it that the kingdom of God is filling up by so many Gentiles turning to Christ while there are so few Israelites? Why is that the case? You could answer that in a couple of ways. The first way you could answer that is with all that has come so far in Romans chapter nine. The perspective has been the perspective of heaven. This is what God ordained and he is bringing it about. But the second way you could answer it, and it would still be truthful, would be to come down to the earthly perspective, the human level, and to look at, okay, what are the Gentiles who are turning to Christ? What are they getting right? And then what are the majority of the Israelites getting wronged? This section begins to transition us to see the perspective of human responsibility. Okay, uh, let's say that a football team 
is on a winning streak. Okay, uh, and they're just playing fantastic. Somebody could uh, ask the question, well, why are they doing so well? Why are they winning? Well, you could answer that in a few ways and they all could all be accurate. One person could say, well, their coach is a pro. Guy is top notch. He's a fantastic coach. That's more of a, a bigger picture kind of perspective. But then somebody else could start to point out, okay, from the player's perspective, here are some of the very specific things they're doing well. Their, their receivers are running precisely precise routes. Their blockers are doing their job and following through. Both of those are accurate, but they're from some different perspectives. Throughout Romans 9, we have been seeing so far the perspective of heaven. Here is what God is doing from the big picture perspective, and here's why things are coming about. But chapter 10, chapter 10 is going to be all about the human perspective. The fact that there is a decision that is needed to be saved. It is looking at the human side of things. And so verses 30 to 33 are transitioning us from this section that has been focusing on the sovereignty of God to a focus then, a look at the human perspective. And, and you know, just, just to point out again, the beautiful brilliance of the Bible, okay? just the infathomable wisdom of the way that God wrote his word. The fact that chapters nine and 10 lie right next to each other in the way that they do, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility put right next to each other and we see some of the relationship of how they correlate. It is beautiful. It is amazing. We need to understand both of them and if we put either one in isolation, we're gonna get some stuff really wrong. So that is a lot of what is happening in verses 30 to 33 is there's a transition bringing us into the subject, the doctrines of chapter 10. But let me additionally point this out as well. You know, throughout the book of Romans, we've studied a, a number of major doctrines. Man's depravity. Jesus's atonement. Justification. Justification comes by faith alone. God's sovereignty and salvation. What God is doing uh, among the Jews and the Gentiles. Sanctification, okay? And in some of these cases, they, they had their own chapter devoted to them, like chapter 6, devoted entirely to sanctification. But what we have happen in verses 30 to 33 is that at least four major doctrines are brought together and summarized in a succinct kind of way. And that's a really beautiful kind of thing. It's something that is needed in studying the Bible. Okay, so we, we've studied verses 1 through 29. It took us 11 sermons to get through there. I preached for about an hour. I know it may seem like four or five. I preached for about an hour. So that's about 11 hours of study in, in, in chapter 9. We need to do that as Christians. But let me tell you something that we also need. We also need the book of Mark. 
you know, we just finished up the book of Mark on Wednesday nights. And one of the things that we pointed out about what's so beautiful about the book of Mark is that Mark takes big things that happened and he can say very quickly in a summarized, accurate kind of way, given the whole big picture in a brief kind of way. That is also something that we need to study and be able to do to understand the Bible. In four verses, Paul brings together and connects the dots to four major doctrines and how they interact with one another. It's beautiful, heavy stuff. The four major doctrines that I see, there could be more, but here's four major doctrines that I see brought together in connecting the dots. Justification. Justification comes by faith alone. The sovereignty of God in salvation, excuse me, let me get my fingers wrong, sorry. The sovereignty of God in salvation and the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. All four of those doctrines are brought together and very succinctly summarized. Don't, don't gloss over how, how important those kinds of things are. Connecting dots. It's one of the things that has to happen in studying the Bible to understand. You're laughing at me for not being able to do my fingers right. Okay, uh, let us study this in, in two different parts. And I'll show you why here in just a second. But here, here are the two parts. We're going to look at what the Gentiles are getting right. Those Gentiles who are saved, what are they getting right? And, and what is Israel getting wrong? Let, let me say by one last word of introduction before we get going. Um, I know that it can seem like a strange thing that when we are speaking of Israel, we're, we're talking about a people group and we're pointing out some errors that are there. Okay. That can seem a little bit awkward and kind of like, why, why are you, why are we doing that? Why is the Bible doing that? You know, that's kind of considered taboo today, unless it's of white people, then it's, you know, it's free game. Okay. But we have to be careful in that kind of thing and understand that the Bible is leading us to do that. Okay. The Bible is willing to look at people groups and to point out errors and weaknesses that are there. We have to be careful that we not develop some sort of superiority over them because one of the points. One of the points in this is that what God has done in Israel is a way of God showing all humans human nature. Part of what we're going to point out today is that some of the errors that most of Israel has fallen to is just a more exaggerated version of what mankind in general struggles with in our sin nature. And that includes us as Christians and temptations that we have. So just bear that in mind. So here is number one, as we get started, Gentiles have received righteousness by faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 30, what shall we say then? What that is asking, we've seen that question asked before in this book. It's kind of a way of getting, uh, getting at, um, we've studied some things. Now, what's the conclusion? What's the end? What can we say about this matter? And then he's going to go into this. What shall we say then? Here are two conclusions. The first conclusion is, regard to Gentiles, here is what the Gentiles who are being saved, here's what they're getting right. And then the second will be, here is what Israel is getting wrong. So here's the first thing that is said. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. Now pause there. What does he mean by that? What does it mean that Gentiles have not pursued righteousness? Well, if you contrast the Gentile nations, peoples, and tribes of the earth with 
uh, Israel, especially of the first century, but also going centuries uh, before and centuries after, if you contrast them, Israel has historically been marked, has been defined as a people who are committed to the law of Moses, the law of God, the law given at Sinai, a people who were pursuing righteousness. Now, one of the big points we're going to get to there is they were not able to live up to the standard of the law. The standard of the law is complete obedience and not just 75% or 80 or 90 or even 99. The standard is complete and that's why we need Christ. So we're going to see that there was a falling short, but Israel has been marked as a people of the law of God. That's not the case with Gentile nations and peoples of the earth. What defines pagan peoples of the earth is indulgence of the flesh. Israel is a group that has been strict and moral, humanly speaking. We see that they fell short because incapable of perfection, as all of us are incapable of this. But Israel was defined as a people who were trying to do that while Gentiles have not been defined by that. Gentiles historically have been uh, defined as people groups who were pursuing indulgence of the flesh. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Uh, This is another way uh, that the Bible shows some things by way of example, for instance. Uh, We encounter uh, Gentile nations numerous times um, in Scripture. And one of the things that it is showing whenever you encounter the Midianites and the ways that they tried to seduce Israel into sin and the influence of the Egyptians and those seven nations in the land of Canaan over and over again, what the Bible is showing is here's what marks the pagan peoples of the earth. And by the way, speaking to most of us in this room, that would include our heritage if you go back far enough. You go back far enough with our heritage and you come to idol worship, okay? And so what marks the pagan nations of the earth has been the worship of idols, the worship of sinful indulgence, the worship of fertility gods. Again and again, all throughout history, You know, whenever we encounter these nations in the Old Testament, you know, what do we encounter? Baal, Asherah, Molech, fertility gods. Do you know how you worship fertility gods and goddesses? Okay. It's by ways I'm not going to bring up and get specific about. Okay. It's by some raunchy, debaucherous types of practices over and over again. uh, This is what we see encountered. By the way, that has been... um, the case not just in the Old Testament. Uh, When you come to the New Testament, I'll talk about the uh, Athens here in just a bit. Uh, But as as you read uh, history, uh, even outside of the Bible, uh, by the way, you got to read original documents to kind of see this kind of stuff and not people's retelling, okay? And their um, ways they twist history. That's been a new kind of hip thing to retell history with the impression that all people groups and all cultures have always been equally valid and beautiful. It's not the case, okay? You read the original documents, one of the 
things you'll see are some pretty disgusting practices. Okay, you can be reading through some Greek literature and just, did I just really read that? That this is what they engaged in after they offered a sacrifice to Zeus, that kind of thing? All right, this has been the practice over and over again. By the way, a lot of this is in the Bible in some pretty graphic terms. Uh, our modern translations sometimes uh, clean up the language, so to speak, so it doesn't come across as quite so graphic. You do need to know that it is in the Bible that's there. But over and over again, as we encounter these pagan nations, they are engaging in practices of the worship of sex, the worship of fertility, gods and goddesses, the worship of indulgence of the flesh. The Gentile cultures of the earth have often been religious, but not pursuing righteousness. And there's a difference. Many of them have been highly religious. Do you remember Paul in Acts 17 visiting Athens? And he spoke at the Areopagus. He's walking through the city and they have temples to Zeus. You know, all the Greek pantheon. Zeus, Aphrodite, Diana, Jupiter, uh, Hermes, on and on. And just in the case they missed any, they had a temple to the unknown God. They were highly religious. But after making an offering to Zeus or whoever, then they would go and participate in a festival where some despicable practices would, would take place. This is human nature. This is something humans go back to over and over again. But here's the point that's being made. Here is how the grace of God is being demonstrated in God's sovereign purposes. God has sent messengers with the gospel to these cultures and he has saved souls out of them. At Athens, those folks were not pursuing righteousness. But one day some guy named Paul shows up and preaches about this man named Jesus who died on the cross and then rose from the dead. And as Paul preached this, a number of people turned to Christ. It may have been that some of those who believed in Acts 17, even that very morning, might have offered up sacrifices to some false idols. They weren't seeking righteousness. And yet they heard the message of the gospel. They heard of Jesus and they believed. And when they believed, they received righteousness. Now, I've been emphasizing that word received. The re word received is, is very important. So in the text there in verse 30, where it says Gentiles who were not uh, pursuing righteousness attained righteousness. The word in the Greek there is kata lambano. Uh, it's a compound word, kata, according to, lambano, to receive. To receive according to, and it, it often carried the meaning of to lay hold of, to acquire, to grab, to seize. It carries this idea of receiving even at the root of its word. Gentiles who were not seeking righteousness have received righteousness. They have laid hold of it. Now, 
Remember that when the Bible uses the word righteousness, you know, we have to use some context to see what is being uh, spoken of there, like a lot of words. And the Bible will speak of righteousness in at least a couple different ways. So sometimes it'll speak of righteousness like, like a righteous deed. You do some act that is a right kind of act. It can be a righteous thing. But the Bible will also speak of, and really the more important way that it is spoken of in the Bible is righteousness as the state the place of being right with God. If you are in the place of being right with God, that is righteousness. And see, most of the time, here's the way that we think. In the flesh, we think, I'll do righteous deeds, and therefore I will be righteous. And that is the basic arrangement of the law. That is the covenant of works that we are born into in this world. And all of that would be totally fine if you had lived every moment of your life in complete righteousness. If you had kept all of the law, lived every moment, every moment of your life up to the standard of God, not man's standard, not your standard of what you think it ought to be, God's standard, If you lived every moment up to that standard, then you would be fine. You would have righteousness. The problem is you and I have never lived even an hour, never lived even an hour up to the standard of God's righteousness. You and I have never kept the first commandment up to the standard that it is, uh, that it was set to for one hour of our lives to worship God uh, alone, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you have no chance of being righteous based on your own righteous deeds or based on any character in you. If you are going to be righteous, you are going to have to find another way to be right with God. The whole point of what justification is, what it is, is to receive righteousness outside of yourself. This righteousness of God that the text is talking about. When it is talking about the righteousness of God here, it's not talking about God's character. It's talking about a righteousness that God is willing to give as a gift. You can receive a righteousness that you did not produce, someone else did. It is the righteousness of Jesus in his perfect law keeping, his merit. You can receive that right standing with God and it comes by faith. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. Jesus was willing to give himself as a substitute, willing to bear the wrath that you deserve so that you can have the righteousness that he earned. There is a righteousness available to you, but we have to understand, and we're being very specific on the words here. You cannot achieve this righteousness. You must receive this righteousness. You might be more moral than other people around you but you are still not able to live up to the standard of righteousness. And that's part of the point of God giving the law. His law shows us we can't measure up and that we need grace. What God has done in Jesus is to make a way for us to receive a righteousness. So this is why um, there's a phrase that theologians sometimes use. It's, it's, it's not a phrase in the Bible, but it is a phrase that describes the teaching of the Bible. It's the phrase of alien righteousness. 
There's a righteousness outside of yourself that you need, not that you have produced and not that you have paid for, earned or achieved. It is a righteousness outside of yourself that you can receive. When you picture, how do I come to God on the day of judgment? What do you picture? Because there are a lot of different images that people have in their mind. Some people picture that they show up there with their heart of gold and God recognizes their heart of gold and he lets them into heaven. Some people picture that they're carrying in their hands their collection of good deeds and they present to God, here's all that I did. And God says, you are so good, come on in. Some people picture scales and bad on one side and good on the other. And I just got to make sure I get one more work than bad and that will be it. All of those are heresy. All of those will send you to hell. This is the reality. We come to the day of judgment in ourselves. We come before God guilty, condemned sinners who fall on our face and we have nothing to bring. There is no heart of gold. You do not have a heart of gold. You have a heart that the Bible says our best righteousness is as menstrual cloths. You have no righteousness you can bring before God. We come before God with nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. There is a righteousness you must receive from God, not one that you can achieve yourself. And so here's the big reveal. Here's the big reveal. Because justification comes by faith, not by works of the law, then that means that someone who hears the gospel can be saved the same day. And do you see why that is important as we're talking about the God's work amongst the Jews and the Gentiles? This means that a Gentile who has never even heard of the law of God before can hear the message of Jesus, believe and be saved even in the same hour of hearing. Paul can come to Athens in Acts 17 and preach the message of the gospel and people can be saved even that very day. What the Gentiles have, who are entering the kingdom of God, what they have gotten right even though they weren't pursuing righteousness. They have believed. They have believed and are being saved by faith. Here's the second part. Israel has missed righteousness because they pursued it wrongly. So verse 30 was about Gentiles. The rest of the verses are mostly about Israel. God is, God is using this as a backdrop to preach the gospel, to preach the message of justification by faith. Uh, look at verses 31 and 32 again. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Israel has not, notice the word, arrived at righteousness. So you notice that that word is different than the word that was used for the Gentiles. Gentiles have attained, katalambano, received. Israel tried to achieve, tried to work, 
tried to earn, tried to pay their own way, tried to achieve their own righteousness, and they did not arrive. So the reason why two different words are used is part of the whole point. Gentiles became righteous because they received. Israel did not arrive at that righteousness. They're not righteous even though they were seeking righteousness. Now, a lot of times humans have trouble with that. Sometimes this is a part that people want to object with the Bible and say, well, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's the way that it should go. I think it should be good enough just that you tried. You're not God. You're not God. God set the standard. God is the one who gives the gospel. You're not the judge. You're not the one who gets to decide these things. God is the one who has made the way of salvation. So, but watch the contrast here. Notice that both God's um, uh, justice and his mercy are on display here in this. Gentiles who were not even seeking righteousness received righteousness when they believed. But Israel was pursuing righteousness, but they did not attain it. They did not arrive at it. They did not achieve it. Now, let's make clear. Seeking to be righteous is a good thing. I plead with you. Seek to be righteous before God. But how you do so matters. Why is it that Israel got it wrong? If they were seeking righteousness, why did they not get it? And the answer is they pursued it wrongly. They, they went about it in the wrong kind of way. A man might have a car broke down and he tries to go fix it. And let's just pretend that the, the actual inventor, the designer of that model of car walked up into that man's driveway and said, oh, I see you have one of my cars. I designed that. Here's how you fix it. And the, and the man uh, with the broken down car said, no, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I know cars. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I've been working on cars since I was a little boy. I got it. And he tries to work on it and he messes it up. It actually is worse by the time that he's done with it. His original intent was good. Fix the car. Along the way, his sinful pride ruined the endeavor. With Israel, there was a fleshly pride that led them to pursue righteousness as they did instead of honestly, humbly, according to the scriptures, according to the internal witness of the conscience, according to the external logic that is evident, according to the uh, uh, persuasion and ways that God had worked and spoken over and over in history, instead of listening to Genesis 4, Genesis 15, 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Hosea, and 40 other passages in the Old Testament that preach justification by faith, instead of listening to that, he said, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I will pay my own way. But listen, that's not just unique to Israel. This is the basic human condition that refuses to submit to God. It is the case of all who try to invent a religion, a theology of works-based salvation. What it is they did was they pursued righteousness in the wrong way according to their own efforts and their own merit. There is a spiritual pride in man's heart 
that wants to make ourselves righteous and refuses to believe the message of God that says, you're not good enough. You're not okay. You cannot live up to the standard that God has said. There is something you need and it is something outside of yourself. The only way for sinful humans to be made right with God is to receive righteousness. And the law shows that. The very law shows that. Pastor Ben did an excellent job this morning of pointing out some of the ways from the Galatians and uh, the rich young ruler of how uh, the law of God was designed to show that. The very law that Israel obsessed over, that very law was meant by God. One of its purposes was to expose the reality that we cannot be righteous based on the law. It's one of the things Jesus said to those uh, Jewish leaders. He said, "You, you, you boast in Moses, you talk about Moses, you're obsessed with Moses. Moses preached about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. Just Israel rejected that truth. Just like the man who insists on paying his own way. Just like all who build a religion, a theology of works-based salvation. Listen to this very carefully. Works-based salvation is built on the faulty foundation of sinful pride. Why do humans do this? Why are there even branches within Christianity that believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they, uh, they come to ways where they preach a message of you're made right with God by Jesus plus your good works? The answer is pride, pride, pride. In pride, our flesh wants to resist that we are guilty, that we're not good enough. But particularly with Israel, it became more complex than that. Because they had the law of God given at Sinai, the only time in history that God gave his law to mankind, Israel thought to themselves, this is actual teaching, we have record of it. And I think it's, it's in part what, G, or what, what Paul is addressing in some of the passages like the end of Romans 2. They believed we're the only ones who have the law of God Therefore, we're the only ones who can be righteous. We're the only ones that have the law. Therefore, we're the only ones that can be in line with the law. Therefore, we're the only ones who can be righteous. So do you see the thought process there? It's more than just the typical human pride. If that's how it worked, if obedience to the law, some, some level, some standard of obedience to the law, some tipping of the scales were how we were justified, if God had designed it in that way, then consider this. A Gentile who was, say, 80 years old, who had lived a life of paganism, 80 years old, discovered the truth of the scriptures, he heard about the one true God, and he believed. Let's say that he began to earnestly believe. He began to worship and submit himself to the one true God. He began to pursue and he wanted eternal life so badly. His heart wanted God to be glorified and to know God because that man didn't have enough time left of this earth to store up enough good works. That man was doomed upon hearing of the truth. But because salvation does not come by works, but comes by faith, that means that a 95-year-old Gentile man can hear the gospel on his deathbed. And if he believes, now we're not talking about some half-hearted little acknowledgement of God's existence so that people feel better. 
We're talking about conversion, the new birth, with humble, submissive, repentant faith. If that man believes in the Lord Jesus on his deathbed, he can receive righteousness from God based on what Jesus accomplished. That is how a thief on the cross could be saved in mere moments before he died by trusting in Jesus. It is because salvation comes by faith and not by works. It is by receiving righteousness. The part of the point is that righteousness does not come according to the wisdom of man. It comes according to this design of God. It is by grace. And God is preaching this message through what he's doing with Jews and Gentiles. Do you see how all this is a backdrop for God to preach the gospel to the world? Notice the end of verse 32 there. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now let me point out a few important things about that and then the scripture that's quoted right after that. First, what's the stone? They stumbled over the stone. There is a rock of offense. There's something there's being tripped over. So, so what is the stone? Is the stone the doctrine of justification by faith alone? No. The answer is the stone is the Lord Jesus. He is the stone of stumbling. He is the rock of offense. Now, let me say a couple of really important things about that. Number one, this is a quote, verse, verse 32. That's a quote from actually two places in the book of Isaiah, a place in Isaiah 8 and then a verse in Isaiah 28. Uh, it's a combination of those two references there. Something that's interesting is that in Isaiah 28, it's referring to the Messiah. The Messiah will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In Isaiah 8, the Lord who speaks, the Lord, Yahweh who speaks, says that he is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Paul applies that to Jesus. What is the conclusion? Jesus is divine. Jesus is Yahweh. That's one of the important conclusions to see. Here's the second one. There is a connection being made between justification by faith and Jesus himself. So I know this is like the kind of the time in the sermon where you can start to like kind of glaze over and be thinking about what's going to happen this afternoon. I get it. Okay. I listen to preaching too. Okay. I want to ask you to lean in because there is something big being stated here. The text is making a connection between the doctrine of justification by faith and Jesus himself. There is a seamless connection and transition between these two things, and that is incredibly important. So here's what's been happening. The text has been saying Israel has missed salvation because they did not understand justification by faith. Here's the, here's, uh, here's the proof. And then they quote a passage that says they missed Jesus. Did you catch that? Israel has missed salvation because they've not understood justification by faith. Here's the proof. They've stumbled over Jesus. Do you see the connection? 
The text is drawing a conclusion between justification by faith and Jesus himself and everything that he represents. That is important because Jesus embodies the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Simply to say the words, Christ crucified. That phrase, that phrase, Christ crucified preaches a hundred hours worth of theology because there are 20 major doctrines all brought together in those two words, Christ crucified because Christ was crucified because of man's depravity. Christ crucified preaches Jesus's atonement. Christ crucified preaches God is holy. You are not. You are guilty. You have no righteousness before God. There is a reason why Jesus went to the cross. You are guilty before God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. You cannot pay your own way in. That's why Jesus went to the cross. God is holy and you are not. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Christ crucified preaches all of that and the gospel of grace. That's the whole point of the cross. Jesus embodies all of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If we were to say, ask the question, what did Israel get wrong? It would be a long list. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of what Jesus does in that sermon is uh, he addresses a long list of ways that they had gotten the scriptures wrong. But when it comes to the biggest, we could say there are two matters that caused them to miss true religion big time. And the first one is justification by faith alone. They were trusting in their works and not by faith. And then number two, they missed Jesus himself. And what the text is doing here is it's making a connection between those two things. You miss Jesus, you miss justification by faith. Look at chapter 10, verse four, and look how it connects there. After talking about justification by faith, again, look at verse four. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's the second thing to notice. Look at verse 33 there. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Look what the stone does. People trip over it. The stone is Jesus and people trip over Jesus. They find him offensive. Jesus is a rock that offends. Now, different people find different parts of Jesus offensive. There are some of Jesus's teachings that some people love and some people despise. I'm talking about those in the world. The people of God love everything about Jesus. But unbelievers, uh, you, take the, uh, you take the teaching that Jesus gave to forgive your enemies. There are some unbelievers who think that is beautiful. And then there are some unbelievers who absolutely hate that. But there are some things about Jesus that mankind in general hates. The Jews hate it. The Gentiles hate it. Americans hate it, etc. And it is specifically Christ crucified and all that is preached with Christ crucified and all that it means in truth that mankind 
hates because Christ crucified preaches the message that he went to the cross because you and I do not measure up. You and I are not good enough, do not deserve it, don't have a heart of gold. We are not going to come to the day of judgment and God be pleased with our actions in ourselves. That is not the way that it is going to go. Christ crucified preaches the need to receive righteousness. It preaches the gospel of grace. There are many who trip over that. There are many who find it offensive. Jesus is offensive. We have to know that. We have to be okay with that. We have to not be ashamed of that. And if I can apply that just a little bit, understand that it is, it is legitimate to try to remove um, unnecessarily offensive things. There may be certain subjects you don't talk about in front of certain people because it would be unnecessarily offensive. I don't believe there's a, there's a time to compromise truth or to pretend like the Bible doesn't say what it says. But there are ways we can remove unnecessarily offensive things to certain groups for the sake of the gospel. But many through history have wanted to try to make a religion where they, they remove everything that's offensive. They want to try to soften uh, over and over again what the Bible says. They want to try to reduce uh, the, the, the Bible's graphic nature, want to try to reduce and, and, and eliminate and want to try to reword some things with some more subtlety to remove its offensiveness, to try to make God's word easier to swallow. But here's what inevitably happens. If you start down that road you eventually lose true religion. Because once you start knocking off things of the list that you're not going to talk about, or when you talk about them, you're, you're going you're to reduce the language. So Ephesians 5, you know, we're not going to talk about headship. We're going to talk about leadership. You know, soften the blow a little bit to make it easier to, to hear. You will lose true religion. You will lose the heart of the gospel. Sinful men find Jesus to taste bitter. That doesn't mean we need to add any bitterness to it, and that would be another way to go wrong on this. We don't need to try to make it more offensive. But it is a fact that the gospel is offensive. Christ crucified is offensive, and we have to be okay with that and not ashamed of it. And while it is true of mankind in general, the text is showing how this has been the case with Israel specifically. Here's thirdly, considering this statement, this quote from Isaiah, who laid the stone? Is this an accident? Is this just something that happened? Or did someone put the stone there on purpose? Well, you see the text. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Connect this back with everything that we've just studied in Romans 9. This would be another part of the sermon here this morning that's meant to give kind of a, an aha light bulb moment to see the connection with everything here. The stone is Jesus and God laid him there on purpose to be a stone that men would trip over. What Isaiah 28 is not saying is that God looked into the future and saw that when he sent his son, the Messiah, into the world, that men would trip over him and find him offensive. And God thought, oh man, I wish I could change that. I wish there was something I could do about that. No, he designed it that way. 
He designed it so that Jesus would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense so that Israel would trip over him. And God would use that as the opportunity to then turn to the Gentiles. God ordained that Israel would trip over the Messiah so that God would use that as the opportunity to turn to the Gentiles and have a period in history where the Gentiles are now being brought into the kingdom of heaven. You see what all you lose whenever you reject the sovereignty of God? You don't just lose one thing, you lose 40 things. But there will come a day when Israel stops tripping stops tripping over him and they will look on him whom they pierced and they will embrace him by faith. Then notice that last phrase of verse 33. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Or if you've got the ESV, another way of translating that is will not be put to shame. Who's the he? So it says he who believes, who's, who's the he? Look over to chapter 10, verse 11. It clarifies it. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame. This is how Gentiles can be saved. It's because salvation comes by faith. This is another one of those mysteries uh, that, that was talked about in the Old Testament, but misunderstood. And now God is pulling back the curtains in the new covenant and revealing it with clarity. It is because salvation does not come by, by obeying works. It comes by faith. In the early church, when those certain Jews, the Judaizers, those Jews who believed that Jesus is the Messiah, so they got that really right, but they got this next part really wrong. They believed that Gentiles who were entering the church needed to become circumcised, come under the law and become Jews in order to be saved. They gravely misunderstood the gospel. Now, Pastor Ben, again, did a great job uh, referring to this uh, in Sunday school from Acts 15, uh, what was going on there. This, this is chronologically probably the first New Testament heresy right here with these Judaizers. They had the first part really right. They were convinced Jesus is the Messiah. But they also believed that they needed to add in their good works and being in line with the law in order to be saved, in order to be righteous. So these Gentiles who were entering the church, these Judaizers began to tell them, well, you guys have started well, but you're not saved yet. You need to get circumcised so that you come under the law of Moses and you become a Jew. Then you can be righteous. Do you see how it is they misunderstood the gospel? And that's why Acts 15, they go through and preach and clarify, no, salvation comes by grace through faith, not by works. But listen, anytime people today get this wrong, they're committing almost the exact same error. It is essentially the same error. There are those who claim the name of Christ. They are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. 
but are still stumbling over the same issue. They're still preaching Jesus plus your works and then you will be righteous. They're stumbling. It's the same lie recycled all over again. And when a church does not consistently preach justification by faith and what the gospel of grace is, it is just inevitable the next generation will slip into works-based salvation all over again. This happens over and over and over again. Even if it's in a Baptist church and they do some weird kind of quasi, then I'll be blessed and then really God love me, kind of weird legalism with it all, they'll miss the gospel of grace. We must clearly and deeply understand what the gospel is, what justification is. It is the gospel of grace receiving a righteousness outside of ourselves. And that comes to us by faith. It's a human tendency to trust self. <coughs> but you trust yourself and you lose. You are not saved by your merit, goodness, works, or righteousness. We are saved by the righteousness of Jesus, which we receive by faith. Believe in him and you will not be disappointed. You will not be put to shame. That's kind of a negative way of saying something that can also be stated in a positive, like we read in Psalm 5 this morning. What does God do to the righteous? He blesses them. There is blessing and singing for joy forever that comes to those who are righteous. You and I in Christ, we're not righteous because we made ourselves righteous. We are righteous because we have received a righteousness. So if you're hearing me right now and you have never turned to Jesus to be saved, I just want to ask you a question to evaluate your own heart. Do you not find some of that going on internally? If you've not turned to Jesus to be saved, do you not find that your heart isn't worried because you keep telling yourself, well, I'm good. I've been religious. Or I, you know, did, did some kind of work that you're trusting in, whether it be baptism or Lord's Supper or whatever else. Listen, it's the same error. There is a righteousness you must receive. And it comes to you by faith. Listen to me, you're not as obedient to the law of God as the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees could not measure up. You are not going to measure up by your own works. You must be pardoned, forgiven, cleansed, made right with God by faith. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you've done in Christ. And Lord, as we continue to study and see more and more of how it all fits together, how you've made this world, how you've worked to save us, what you've done in the gospel, Lord, again and again, we just keep being amazed. Thank you, God, for all of the grace that you've given. Please bless, O oh Lord. Father, I pray that we will live as people, live with robust theology in our hearts that then spills over into being doers of the word, obeyers, those who, who live wholeheartedly for your glory because of our firm understanding and rejoicing in the gospel. So please, God, bring this about. Make us a church that pleases and glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.